saw something. A clown. Yeah, I saw him too. What happens when another Georgie goes missing? Or one of us? Are you just gonna pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? If we stick together, we'll win. They've come here to see me. Come quick! Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel and... As always, I'm very happy to be joining. I'm sorry, yeah, uh, sorry. Usually, you you introduce me, so now I'm completely thrown off. I don't even know my name or my own name is. Um, I'm uh, Rob Wallace uh, of of all the film sites. Sorry, yes, I did I did throw you off there a little bit. Uh, the reason why we're so oh is because well, we've just seen it and it was good. Also, this is the thirtieth episode of the Electric Shadows podcast, so we've done thirty of these now. I know, it's, it's mad, isn't it? I, I, it still seems very clear to me, you know, you, you're sort of saying, hey, what, you and but almost not far off two years ago, saying, do you want to do a podcast? And the first being the Winter of the Western to coincide with, well, they would have a Bone Tomahawk and the Hateful, and Eight. Hateful Eight. And wow. So here we are again. And it's been a pleasure to do 30 episodes with you. And with you, with the fact that we're still going. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's um, testament just, to something. It's testament to something. It's testament to the fact that some, yeah, that there is still some some stuff to talk about that we want to belong to the ages forever. And cheers, if you've listened to one or more than that, then thank you very much. Um, it is much appreciated. So today we are going to have a bit of a horror podcast, which as an anniversary podcast I think is very good because I love my horror and uh, there's a lot of horror to talk about. So we're going to be looking at It, the new adaptation of the Stephen King book, which came out, so we are recording this on Saturday the 9th of September, that's right isn't it? I think so. And it came out the other day. We are going to be doing a very quick Fright Fest roundup, and by we, that is the Royal We, I'm going to be doing a very quick Fright Fest roundup. And I'm going to sit here and see. Make, make, yeah, make, make disagreeable noises. Yes. <laughs> going to be looking at the Dark Tower and also at the BFI Stephen King season that is currently happening. And I think that's. And I can talk a bit about Mother as well, because I saw Mother. Oh, Mother, yeah, which yeah, I'm, I'm dying to see. And it's, it is very good, a little spoiler there. So, if you don't mind, Rob, can I start off with a roundup of Fright Fest? <laughs> yes, of course you may. <laughs> so, Rob, so I was very, very fortunate to get a press pass for Fright Fest, and Rob also applied for a press pass for Fright, for Fright Fest, but um, unfortunately didn't get one. So in all, in all fairness, I left it far too late. So that's, no, it's uh, yes. unfortunate, but understandable. So I attended Fright Fest with some of my colleagues from Sky, and it was the 18th year of Fright Fest. Um, so for a horror film festival, having an 
18th anniversary. It means it's now old enough to watch most of the films there. Yes, or, that's or right. Actually, yes. watch, actually watch the films. It's yeah. old enough to drink, old enough to vote, and old enough to watch most of the films that now play at Fright Fest. It was actually quite a gruey Fright Fest this year. So this happened um, on August the 24th through to the 28th, so the August Bank Holiday, as the main Fright Fest event does every year. And it was it was very good. Um, it was five days of, I thought, a very high level of horror. There were 64 films playing. I managed to see 22 in the end. Curse of Chucky was a good opener, and they had uh, the director, Don Mancini, Jennifer Tilly, who is just a force of nature. She was there as well to introduce the film and to do a Q&A. Was uh, Brad there? Brad wasn't there, but... Um, uh, so Brad Dorif, who voices Chucky the Killer Doll, as I'm sure you all know, the story is that um, serial killer has gone into this into the body of a good guy doll and become a murderous doll and as as uh, as happens as happens but his daughter Fiona Dorif who was in the last film The Curse of Chucky and in this new film The Cult of Chucky she was in it and that's a nice bit of continuity there to have her in it and she was and she was there as well and she was very good in the Q&A and yeah I kind of cuz I think that Chuck is always seen as a as a bit of a second tier Horror, horror franchise yeah. and horror icon, but I, apart from the seed of Chucky, and even that had some really good moments. That was a really meta one where they were making a Chucky film and Jennifer Tilly played herself. I actually think that the Chucky films are really, you know, consistent and and do their job very effectively. And um, and Don Mancini, he's a, he's a good director. He he knows how to shoot a horror film. But he does some different things. I mean, this one, Cult of Chucky just goes off in so many fucking mad directions at the end. It's, it really is one where he is now thinking, what else can I do with this as a franchise and what areas can I take it out into? And it was very impressive. It closed with a film called Tragedy Girls, which which I thought was good. It's kind of like a clueless meets Heathers meets kind of Natural Born Killers or something like that. But other films over the weekend that were very good uh, were Imitation Girl, which is on paper is very similar to the, to the Man Who Fell to Earth or Under the Skin. It's about this alien life form that lands and adopts the body of a porn star. So the a whole bit thing. sort of speciesy. No, <laughs> it's not like species. It's a it's it's a very meditative sort of film. Like, so it's it's not you, treated for shocks or anything. Would you say that was a specious comparison? That was, that was a specious comparison. You just made there. That was very good though. <laughs> Uh, but that was my number one film of the festival. I thought that was very good. Uh, that was directed by an Iranian-American director called Natasha Kamani, and it was it was great. Another film I really liked was It Stains the Sands Red, which is about this go-go girl, um, so this stripper from Vegas who, during the zombie apocalypse, gets stuck out in the Nevada desert with a zombie that just won't stop chasing her. And in the proper George A. Romero way, the zombie is a metaphor for a guilty past that she has to face up to at some point so she can run ahead of it but she can never out, out, outrun it, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed it's um and that stars Brittany Allen as the as the woman being chased and she's in the new Saw film coming up Jigsaw so and she's very good in it so it's one of those films where just when you think that there are no more brains in a zombie film there's life in the old there's yeah, life in the old corpse yeah yeah there's life in the lifeless corpse yeah um but that was really good and there was another one called Mayhem by Joe Lynch you had a Joe Lynch? He did Everly. Oh, yeah. Uh, Everly that nobody really read. Did you read Everly? I thought... I thought Everly was was good, but it was... 
So that's the Salma Hayek one where it's all set in one flat and she is basically having to fight all the people coming to try and kill her because she's whacked a Japanese mob boss. I should who do. Was, who was like kind of having a, a very rough kind of sex party with her. It's a, it's a sleazy film and Salma Hayek I don't think likes talking about it. But, um, but I thought it had some good moments in it and overall I don't think it really worked. But this one though, he also did Wrong Turn 2 and he did The Knights of... Badassdom, which I never saw, but I heard wasn't um, as good as it could have been. Which is like Peter Dinklage, yeah, and uh, Danny Pudi, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, is it Danny Pudi? I think it's Danny. Pudy. Oh, well, okay, yeah. Um, so yes, uh, but, uh, but he's on a new film called Mayhem, and Mayhem stars Stephen Yeun from The Walking Dead. Oh, of course, yeah. I, um, have you seen it? No, I saw, I saw some of the uh, some of the materials surrounding it. It's um, it looked really interesting. Yeah, so it's basically there is a rage virus. And the rage virus just causes everyone to act psychotically or on their own worst instincts or their own horny instincts um, and do whatever they want. And the film sets after there's been a cure for the rage virus. So it's now a bit like the flu and you can kind of catch it. And it infects this law office um, the day that Stephen Yun's character has been framed for malpractice. Uh, and he's trying to get to his boss to have it out with his boss. And then suddenly everyone in this law office just Goes turns... Nuts, yeah. just just goes nuts and it stars a woman called Samara Weaving who is who you go to if you can't afford Margot Robbie because she looks a lot like Margot Robbie and has actually that same kind of very charismatic sass that Margot Robbie has and the early scenes when so when Joe Lynch is showing Stephen Yeun's characters rise through the ranks is kind of like David Fincher or Edgar Wright it's all done in like you know one shot of of a lift and and things will happen, so the lift doors will close open again, and he's wearing like a better suit or something like okay. that. And it's and there's a lots of really good, neat sort of flourishes yeah. in there. Yeah, and it, indeed, it's uh, and it's one of those films that you watch thinking, when's it going to get tiresome? When's it going to run out of steam? And it never does. And it's about eighty-five minutes, and it's really well paced. And I thought, to be completely honest, this should be your step up to the big leagues. And if they are insisting on doing a Joker origins film, I think you could be quite a good person to do a Joker Origins film based on what I saw in Mayhem. As opposed to, bizarrely, Martin Scorsese. I would love to see a Martin Scorsese-directed Joker Origins film. The fact that it's Todd Phillips who did fucking Hangover, it's like, I don't rate you as a director, I'm afraid. I didn't I really think that... Scorsese, is it Scorsese producing, then? Just producing. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Weird, isn't it? Utterly like, weird. He usually, he, like, you know, he backs usually sports films like, I don't know, Gamora. Hmm. And you know, think films that like why is he playing into that? Like what what you know Presumably he's thinking grandkids inheritance or something. I mean it's like it's only giving him a big payday, but to what end? Yeah, you wouldn't think that Scorsese would have to worry about that and how actively no. involved is he gonna be and how much more it's like, you know, if you're taking time off doing the you know, the fucking Irishman to do that, then <laughs> do, don't then don't. Then just don't don't do it. Because we are approaching the point at which these that generation are going to start dying. They're already starting dying. It's like, yeah, Wes Craven's gone. George A. Romero's of gone. Of course. We are now at the point where, even though there's like an age gap between us, I think that your heroes are kind of my heroes yeah. as well. The, yeah, the formative people, the formative filmmakers. Oh, when you, like 70s, your, 70s into 80s into yeah, cinema. Yeah, that's right. It's like, so therefore, you're thinking, well, in the next 10 years, they probably won't be a Martin Scorsese. They probably won't be a David Cronenberg. And it's like, well, that's something... Yeah, and, and there won't be a Spielberg. And it's like, that's something that makes me sad. You know, my heroes are now dying. Is that the George A. Romero has gone? He made some duff films. He was he was someone who worked outside of the system and sometimes that worked well. Other times it didn't. But he was an independent filmmaker who made some of the best films 
ever made, I think. He's gone. That energy and that particular set of circumstances that, that allowed him to do that. And that vision, yeah, it was gone. It's, and he was also... Um, you know, a working class. He always said that zombies were the blue collar horror monsters. They were the ones that didn't really get like a very good break. They didn't have any anything on their side. They weren't educated. They're literally just the shambling. Ma- yeah, just the shambling. They're, they're not vampires. They're not aristocratic. That's right. As in, I think zombies work best. Are probably because they're so simple and their drives are so simple. They work most potently as a symbol mm, that's in right. a way that you know, like you can kind of look at vampires and go, "Oh, that's oh, vampires is like a yeah, it's like yeah, a, yeah." It's a symbol of power, yeah, as opposed to yeah, as opposed to zombies, which inherently well, they've inherently got a sort of class commentary in there and consumerism, right. and the fact that it, it's so adaptable, as you say, you know, in uh, the stains the sands red, mm. which I think is now available on VOD. It's if it's not, then it is going to be very soon. It's um, yes, it's coming up very soon, and I think it's also going to shudder. I know for a fact it's going to shudder in January of next year because the team are handling it asked me to put it on my review, but I think it's out on VOD either now or at some point this month, definitely. And, and it's well worth the rent. Did you see Freehold? I didn't know, but I hear I heard that was good as well. I heard that's fantastic, and uh, that is at some point coming to Sky Store. So oh, well, then well, I can rent it. The other good thing about Fright Fest is that. All the films there are about 90 minutes long. It's a film festival that, because it shows a lot of low-budget films, it... You need to have economy. Yeah, and they just showed that the three-act structure and a good 85 to 95-minute runtime can work wonders. There was one of the films that got two stars in Empire, which I thought was wrong, called Killing Ground, which is an Aussie film. And it's really tough, but really well done. Um, It's incredibly tense. It's about this couple that go to a beauty spot in Australia. And there's a tent there, and but the people that... And it's yeah, clear that it's a family living there, but they're nowhere to be seen. And as the day, as the first day goes on and they don't come back, and they kind of say, well, what, where are the people here? Meanwhile, in flashback, you see the family and what's happened to the family. And at one point, the timelines intersect in such a breathtaking way. It literally took the audience's breath away when they spotted what had happened. And it was just great. I thought, I and mean, it's it's a tough film. It's a really tough film, and, it, and it's it's a bleak film. And ultimately, it is kind of the same thing as Wolf Creek. It's yeah, you go city folk go into rural Australia and find out that the locals are not very nice. <laughs> it sort of goes all the way back to Deliverance, kind of. It, yeah, and it's a film that's that is heavily indebted to that. But it's good, and it's good because it's very naturalistically played. It does certain things with characters that you don't expect. It's um, and and the timeline just adds a really really nice unusual feel to it and a real sense of dread from the very beginning so yeah and there was uh, The Villainess which is the yeah, Korean film that was in my top 10 as well that was very good or the South Korean film I should say yeah Nikita meets John Wick meets The Matrix meets Kill Bill meets <laughs> The Raid meets Hardcore Henry yeah the action's amazing the story itself is okay the main woman I think is um, oh, I can't remember Kim Ok Bin I think her name is she was the woman from first years ago she is great it's the story itself is is good enough a bit incoherent at points but yeah overall it's good enough and just to finish off on the Fright Fest piece there was another film called Meatball Machine Kodoku which mm. is um, are you getting that one on store? I don't think we are well, not that I know of we've, uh, we've currently got Eat Locals oh which is the Jason Fleming one that played there as well I've, I've not seen it I heard it was okay one star in Empire, but I know some people who saw it and said no, it, it was it was much better than that. Yeah, I say Empire. The yeah, you know, not, yes. not all films can be Suicide Squad. Yeah, indeed, not all the films four can star, be the four star Suicide Squad. It is one of those things sometimes when you think, yeah, it's all right, guys." 
I'm just looking up the director of that one. It's because um, he's the guy who did Tokyo Gore Police, Yoshihiro Nishimura, uh, and he just does everything. He shoots, writes, edits, does all the effects. He does everything apart from like yeah, makes the noodles, and I would imagine he does that as well. His films are wild and they are undisciplined, and there's lots of gore and sex in them, and they just don't stop. And it's one of those things where if you're watching it on your own, it can be quite tiresome. If you're watching it in a in a fright fest audience with everyone really up for watching something just absolutely insane, it can be just the yeah the biggest blast. And it was a massive blast of energy. It was really it was really funny. It's kind of like an under the dome story. So Tokyo, a big part of Tokyo, gets covered in this glass dome and. There's a guy who's a very good-hearted debt collector who actually pays lots of people's debts himself, finds out he's got cancer, and then tries to live his life, and then there's this thing happens, and aliens invade because of this dome, and he becomes something else, and then has to try and protect the woman he loves, and yeah, meanwhile there are yeah, dismembered cocks flying around, and um, blood spurting around, and uh, it just doesn't stop, and it's just absolutely insane. And it has that really good kind of homemade effects. You kind of think, this doesn't look realistic, but because of the vision and the world that you've created, it was better effects. It wouldn't work as well. There's something about the homemade aesthetic of this that is really good. So yes, that was, uh, that was good. Yes, that was Fright Fest. There's an October Fright Fest, which I think is on Saturday the 28th of October at the Haymarket. Uh, so what used to be the Sydney World Haymarket, I think that's opening up again. And so they're going to have a one-day event there. They're, I think they're showing seven films. Um, it normally starts about half ten and runs to about half ten. Um, it used to be an all-nighter, but I think that in a way, a lot of the core audience of Fright Fest are like me and are getting on a bit. And the idea of doing an all-nighter, the last one I did just absolutely killed me for a couple of days. So they've moved it to daytime now so everyone can go, which is very good. Are you going on to that? I'm going to look at what the films are. Um, because I don't do press passes now, obviously, because it's a one-day thing. But the films are normally very good they have on there. So I'm thinking about it, yeah, because it's, you know, I think it's about 50 quid or something like that to go and watch a day of movies. Then they're yeah, typically good. Yes, so I think I will probably go and cover that as well. Excellent. Um, so yeah, so there'll be more things on their site, which is frightfest.co.uk, um, and I think they're announcing the full lineup at the end of this month, about 29th of September, so October 28th, is the Halloween Frightfest Ordea. Now, one of the films that they said they really tried to get at Frightfest this year, but couldn't, was It. And they, I'm sure, would have, I mean, that would have been a great way to close the festival. Tragedy Girls was, was, was a really good film, but having just seen it... So Rob and I saw it this morning, along with another friend called Ben, um, and we all thought it was good. Yeah, it's yeah, it's good. this pronoun thing's going to get very confusing very very quickly. But bear with us, just dear, dear, gentle listeners. It was what you'd hope it would be. I mean, one of the things that I've got an, I've got an affection for the for the miniseries version, but it is as most Stephen King miniseries tend to be, a bit overlong and a bit schlocky. Whereas this, you know, who directed this? Um, uh, Andy Muschietti? Muschietti? Andy Muschietti, yeah. Andy Muschietti. Who directed Mama, which I've never seen. Have you seen Mama? I have seen Mama. It's good. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I should watch Mama. But that's, I think that was the only other film that he actually directed. Um, I think I think before that it was all just shorts or TV, maybe. I might have directed... No, no. Um, yeah, shorts. So... Mamma was his first film back in 2013. Was he, was he one of the Del, he was a Del Toro discovery? Was I think? Yes, I think Mamma was like one of those that was presented by Guillermo Del Toro. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and one thing which is which I really which I really appreciate about the new it is that they get the tone exactly right. Yes, they do. That's right. Which is always, I think, one of the primary issues in terms of Stephen King adaptations is that there is such a specific tone that you have to get into otherwise it just becomes silly because yeah, yeah, yeah. there are you know it, it is horror and there are lots of outlandish elements in it but you kind of have to get it boiling underneath the surface because it is all about small town corruption and what goes on under underneath all the you know underneath this sort of the idyllic main streets and the it's weird to think that there was a time when everyone was just writing off Stephen King adaptations as not successful and the Stand By Me came along was seen as the first one since maybe Carrie that had been a success in terms of nailing the tone. When actually you go back and watch things like and The Shining is very different to the book because it's like, just not it's not it's, Stanley Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, it's not Stephen King's The Shining it's Stanley Kubrick's is the miniseries actually called Stephen King's The Shining I reckon it might I think it might be, be yeah it's kind of uh, um, I've never seen that apparently it's interminable but apparently Jake Webber as Jack Torrance is very oh, Steve, good Steve Webber Steve Webber yeah he's he's very good especially because the character as King created him as uh, is you know is a is is a guy with issues he's not like an out and almost basically an out and out psycho from the very beginning as um, (laughs) as Jack Nicholson is Jack Nicholson's one of those guys yeah even at the beginning when he's in the interview and it's like he's just that sounds just fine to me (laughs) this man is clearly unstable it's like this man could just Snap and murder everybody out of cabin fever right now. He he drove here. <laughs> so that bit where they're driving up, it's like, Dad, mm, I'm hungry. Well, you should have eaten your breakfast. <laughs> it's like I haven't even fucking got to the haunted hotel yet, and it looks like it's going to take an axe to them. Where, but it's still a masterpiece. I love that film. Yeah. Whereas the miniseries, um, it does get the character arc um, down a lot more clearly. Even if it does make you the whole the yeah the execution does make you realise. Well, that's why Kubrick didn't do the topiary animals. Yeah. Because I mean, they look terrible. They and they look terrible in like yeah, the late nineties, whatever it was, when they were done the CGI. He tried to do it with stop motion, and I think early on realised this is never going to happen. Let's let's use a maze, and the maze is like a great metaphor. The, but yeah, you also had Christine, which I really rate. You had the Dead Zone, which I thought was really good. Um, the, there oh, you, was... you mean political documentary, The Dead Zone? Yes, that's right. Yes, it is political documentary now, isn't it? Um, there was Cat Sign, which came out in '85. I thought that was a was a good movie. Um, so I think that there was. It's just that you also had things like The Children of the Corn, which was yeah, seen as not very good. And then when Stephen King himself got involved with with the films, you had things like Max Overdrive, which is rubbish i mean it's it's based on the short story trucks and there was a film made of trucks that actually was which was a bit better than maximum overdrive but the film itself made no sense and was actually it's really really fascinating because obviously Stephen but, king directed it yeah and he and and he directed it and said i should never have directed it but but dino de laurentis can talk you into doing anything and i came out of the meeting thinking why haven't i directed a million films already I'm, obviously i can just go and direct a film then he would be phoning up george a ramiro and saying, I tried to do this, and then Jordan Miro will be laughing on the phone saying, I can't believe that you tried to do that. You probably wasted half a day doing that as well, didn't you? So that film was rubbish. Um, and then there was Sleepwalkers, which was the Killer Cats one. That, um, oh, no, no, the cats were the good guys, weren't they? And there was like a malevolent force, but the cats were the army. Of course the, the cats were the good guys. I mean, but the cats, like, come on, we'll get it right. <laughs> <laughs> but the cats were the army that would defeat the malevolent force. And that was a, I think that was a script that was written by him. That was very good. And... Didn't he write the script for Pet Cemetery as well? And that was ridiculously awful. But I think the thing that it gets really right is the tone. We should get into the story of it now. So um, the book is 
always has like a special place in my heart because I loved Stephen King when I was a kid and I still love him now but would read everything that he wrote for about three or four years when I was a teen and it was the first thousand page book that I ever read and it was just this this just a huge book and it was such a great story and in the book it's it's over 30 years um, or 27 years and it's holding flashback to the 50s when when this group of kids were kids and then you know, now in the mid 80s when they're adults and they're having to go back and yeah, confront the evil again in the film they've just stuck with the kids part yeah, which I think it. is really clever that's the thing I it, as you say it's a thousand page book and it's got to just have these two uh, sort of um, not overlapping these two consecutive narratives and yeah, you could you could do a version where you're cutting back and forth between them to build tension, but I think that would end up undermining because you really need to establish the characters in both time frames. And the book itself does flash back and forth. Yeah, there, there yeah. is the and yeah, I just think and obviously with the predominance of like the likes of Stranger Things mm. and there, I think there is I think there is an appetite for the story about the, just the, the kids element. That's, that's what I think it's going to be actually strangely more difficult to land the adults I think so yeah well I think with, with the kids it's kids going on a monster hunt just has lots of potential for things like kids being out of their element and having to confront and also thematically I think it's, it's very interesting it will be interesting to see how the adult stuff comes off so for those who don't know a very very quick plot synopsis it's actually ripped from IMDb um, a group of bullied kids band together when a monster taking the appearance of a clown begins hunting children. That's fine. <laughs> it takes place in a town called Derry, once known as Old Derry. Well, there's a Old Derry, and the town has kind of evolved from that. And this is a town that has had a history of tragedy, particularly tragedy involving the death and disappearance of children over like something more so. than six times the national average. Something more than yeah, that's right, yeah. It's a town that clearly has some kind of sickness to it, and that has infected all the adults in one way or another. And the film focuses on a group of kids who are called the Losers, which is a name that has been given to them, and they've kind of taken up as a, like almost like a badge of honour. That's right. And they, and one of them in the opening scene of the film, uh, so there's one called Bill, and his brother dies, and his brother's murdered by this clown called Pennywise who is the kind of it, the evil, the thing that they can't really describe. And from there, Pennywise begins to make himself more known to the kids of Derry and begins to pick them off. And they you know, realise that something is at work and they realise they have to do something about it. So it's interesting that it's set in the 80s, when the original was set in the 50s, but the 80s is now as much of a period piece as now, as the 50s was when the book came out. So which shows how long ago it was that the book came out. It was 30 years ago I read that book. It's just, ugh, anyway. Which is saying, you know, if, if you'd made a pact then... Yes. ...to, to go back, you, it would have been three years, and it would have been three years ago that you would have gone back and fought the evil again. Yes, because the story is that every 27 years, this evil will return to the town and will feast on the innocence of the town. And then it kind of hibernates, and then it comes back again. And so, yeah, so if I was one of the kids here and I had survived the initial encounter, it would now be three years after my second encounter if I'd survived that one, which puts into perspective just time and how awful it is. So time is the real monster. Time is the real monster. And it 
I remember reading it and thinking this is really great and it's yeah, really big and you would never be able to make this into a film because it's just too too big. So they made it into a miniseries back in 1990, 27 years ago. So uh-huh. 27 years later, The Evil Returns. That must be just a wonderful coincidence because this film has been in development hell for years. Carrie Fukunaga, who is the director of... He did season one of True Detective. And he also did Jane Eyre. He did that version He did of Jane, Jane Eyre, which was really good. And I think he also did... I interviewed him once, years and years ago, for a film, I think, was it called Sinombre, which actually was a very, very good kids' film in terms of... It was about these, these young Mexicans trying to get away from a gang uh, and trying to jump the border, basically, and get into America. And it was a film in which... It's a film in which you're kind of... You're on the side of these young kids trying to get away from this awful crime-ridden gang because they're going to be dead within a year and it's a film that Donald Trump would say, Hmm. the gangsters are the real heroes in this because they're trying to keep their own people in their own country. Yeah, Awful, awful. It's it's a really good film. And he was a really, really nice guy to interview as well. So when I heard that he was directing it, I thought, well, actually, that's not bad. That's quite good. He also did Beast of No Nation as well, which um, I have not yet seen. So I am well behind on that. Yes, he was going to direct It. It eventually fell through. He's still credited as one of the screenwriters, reading the trivia on IMDb that the studio wanted Andy Muschietti to just use his script. But I don't think that happened in the end because it's, um, it's credited to Chase Palmer, who did... He did It. And, well, wow. okay, so he's, this is his first... Yeah, his first screenplay. And Gary Dorberman, who did Annabelle. Um, and he's doing The Nun and... Yes, and he did... Sorry, the Nun being the Annabelle Conjuring spin-off. Yeah, so really... <laughs> I mean, Mama was, I think, was quite well received. Annabelle was kind of okay received. Carrie Fukunaga was moved off of the project. Chase Palmer hasn't done anything apart from it. It is amazing this film has worked as well as it's worked. Is Do you think this is a studio... Wanting a, having a very specific idea of what they wanted in Carrie Fukunaga, maybe want, wanted to do something slightly different. It's one of those using people who are relatively inexperienced, or but talented, have, have you know have to have some work behind them that indicates promise, and then going well, you know what, these guys aren't going to rock the boat. Yes, it could be that. It could be that indeed. Warner's probably looked at Stranger Things and said, "We want the film, the film version of that," and Stranger Things just borrows so heavily from it anyway. We want that but with the property the Stranger Things is just heavily lifting from to be honest yeah, watching it I'm quite glad they've done it like that I'm glad that they did have the kids story first because now you're thinking they've had this this big event we don't know who's being cast as the adults well, we have but some opinions adults, yes we have some opinions the adults film will be will be something else and it, it'll be interesting because the book from what I can remember in the book there's not a huge amount of of incident with the adults. I thought the bit with the kids just stuck with me more. The, yeah, the ending of the book, the adult story and the kids story run kind of parallel and kind of seem, and are reflecting each other. So it will be interesting to see how they do that. But I think it's actually quite, well, it was a good decision for this film to just, to just stay with the kids and to put it in that yeah, long ago year of 1988 into 89 when he had things like Batman playing at the cinema hmm. and Lethal Weapon 2, but as you said, wrong month wasn't released until August, so it couldn't have been playing then. And it's like, yes, Warner Brothers clearly just didn't want to use The Last Crusade at that point and have to get permission for it. So they just went with their own films. But why did we like it? Or why did you like it? I really liked it because 
Largely, I think the, t- the it's it's the tone was very even-handed. You're 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 depicting kids at a very specific point in their life, and there are certain commonalities, you know, sort of uh, in terms of every, how's every how everyone's feeling, and to find a way and make that and sort of make that feel fresh and true, and still work within the context of because as, as you say, so many things have been lifted from it. You know, Stranger Things, and we've also got an awareness of King's other work, like films like Stand by Me. You know, that based yeah. on the, the story by Stephen King. That all this stuff is so familiar to us, but so to make that work and feel authentic in the context of a of a bigger horror film that is about you know conf- it's kind of about coming together to confront your fears. Uh, the kids' performances are uniformly great, I think, or well, not quite uniformly great. Yeah, there, so there, there, were, were, there, were, there were a couple of. I mean, it's, yeah, it's always hard when to uh, criticise a kid's performance. A couple of characters in there who don't have as much to do in the book as in the film as they do in the book, and we were kind of speculating whether that's that was for timing or for performance reasons yeah, yeah. They, they had to edit around anything well there's no kid that you know absolutely disgraces themselves and there are some kids that are really really great one of the things that it got really well done is that because when you read the book you get a real sense of just a sickness is in this town toxicity and like just a, a disease and the disease either turns the adults into it's apathetic yeah, it's either into predators or into just apathetic sacks of meat who will just drive by something awful happening. And it's the kids who are the ones that see this because they have yet to be corrupted, so they're still quite innocent. So they are still full of curiosity and wonder, and when they see something that is um, outside of the norm, they you know, won't just walk by. And that comes across really well, I think. I think you do get a sense of the sickness and of how in peril these kids are from it. It was weird because one of the things about the book is that the adults can't remember what's happened to them. They've just It's all just they've dropped out of their heads over the intervening decades. It was 30 years ago that I read it, and I was watching it going, oh, yeah, I've got this bit, and <laughs> this is the thing with this, and that's right, and that happens. And it was all beginning to come back to me. And it's quite good in a way it was like that, because one of the, the themes, and, and there are lots of themes in it that I thought transposed the film very well, um, and one of them is, is abuse and that it's about child abuse and how different children can be turned into very, very different sorts of characters through the abuse they suffer at the hands of their parents. And how all this is going on beneath, say, the, the surface of the veneer of this small town, sort of fairly idyllic. It's a well-to-do, just middle-class yeah. small town. It's, it still has very much like a working-class element to it, but there's enough money to go around that it's not a dust bowl, destitute town. Yeah, beneath the facade, there's all this horrible stuff happening behind closed doors. Like the fact they're posting up missing kids' photo uh, posters, basically one on top of another. Yes. Like, you know, that one's up there now, but in a couple of weeks, another kid will have gone missing, and we'll just put that one straight over the top. That's right. Um, and there's, I'm not sure if it's in the book, There's, but, the, but they talk about a county fair, I'm going to a county fair in, in the film, and I was kind of hoping that we would see the county fair, we don't. But I was hoping that we would because one of the films, sorry, one of the things the film gets across quite well is through the character of Pennywise is that kind of hysterical fun. And there's a couple of uses of a Wurlitzer and the music from a Wurlitzer and just that kind of slightly too manic fun that you get from a Wurlitzer. 
I was thinking, oh, a county fair will have lots of opportunities <laughs> to have lots of horrible, really freaky music. And uh, it'll all start off as really nice and then it will become quite bad, but they didn't do that in the end. Yeah, and so many, so many visuals, you know, it's like, you know, you could have penny, Pennywise on the merry-go-round just sort of swinging yes. back around and back around. And... and it could be like yeah, the um, one of the strength things when you have to hit the bell and it rings the bell thing and uh, that could be him and et cetera, et cetera. House of Horrors, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it does turn into a House of Horrors at one point in this film, though. And it's a film that takes its time. I mean, it's, it's only two and a quarter hours, I think. Yes. And I could have done with another 15 minutes. If this had been two and a half hours, I would have been fine with that, I think. That's I think. Uh, it's strange. This isn't the only Stephen King, recent Stephen King adaptation. I thought, this could do with being longer. Yes, it did. But for entirely we, different reasons. After we've talked about it, Rob, who took a bullet called The Dark Tower, which is uh, ironic because right, it's all about a gunslinger, gunslinger. <laughs> is going to tell us all about the wonderful experience he had watching The Dark Tower. It won't take long. <laughs> it won't take, much like the film, it won't take long. Yeah, the kids were very good. They were just well cast. And it was one of those things, again, when I was watching it, it was like, okay, so you're that guy, you're the mouth. That's right, I remember there being the mouth, and that's Richie Tozier, played by Finn Wolfhard, who was in... It was in Stranger Things, obviously. Yeah, he's the uh, main kid in Stranger... And it, it's in, I like how... There is, if you look at all the kids from Stranger Things and a lot of the kids here, there's there's been a lot of eighties themed prod, projects in in you know in recent years. Eighties nostalgia, yeah, eighties nostalgia. A, I mean, a, like, a monster in itself. And I mean, I say you can kind of chart it with uh, with Marvel, which is one thing that's really intrigued me. You know, you can look at um, Winter Soldier and say, well, Winter Soldier was like the seventies conspiracy, and now we're into the eighties, and uh, then uh, Captain Marvel's taking place in the nineties. So they're kind of following. The uh, the generation of new of what presumably going to be new parents and feeding into that nostalgia for when they take when they're taking the kids to see stuff or when they're and it'll be or just the filmmakers just what they're yeah, they, the filmmakers but it'll be interesting to see what the nineties looks like because of course yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy is all about the eighties yeah. particularly part two and this was I think was a good film in terms of you would have Batman and Lethal Weapon two playing at the cinema there's a nice running gag about new kids on the and block. block. Which was good. There's also like a nice throwaway reference to AIDS as well. And so like, yeah, there's a there's an AIDS epidemic, and we could get anything from that. There's one of the kids is a real hypochondriac because his mother has um, smothered him. Yes, indeed, and she is uh, a large lady who is metaphorically smothering him. He's um, that's Eddie, isn't it? Yeah. When, when she's sitting on the couch, like because she's quite because she is large and she does quite quite large stomach. I kept on waiting for a scene where Pennywise was going to come out of her, like was... crawl out of. I was waiting for a scene, because in the book, because King is very good at describing characters, and is very good at describing characters who have kind of gone to seed a bit. And also, one thing that he's never really uh, given much credit for is that he's good at describing social awkwardness um, in a way that like, you know, Ricky Gervais has made an entire career out of. And there's a, I remember there's a scene in the book where I think his mum loses him, and Eddie's in this department store, and she's, I think she's trying on like a a corset or something and she goes running around looking for him to see where he is and she just gets this, this impression of this really large lady who is living a very unhealthy lifestyle with just you know, lots and lots of peanut butter cups and that kind of thing just absolutely obsessed with her son being okay and just that 
it being a form of abuse in itself and convincing him that he's got all these allergies and that he's mm. ill. I thought she was very well cast as well. And so, yeah, it, it's nice looking back in recent years. You look at a lot of the uh, the kids who pop up in Disney films. Yes. Yeah, uh, Disney films like Pete's Dragon or The Jungle Book. or And they, they do talk about the whole casting process and how I found this kid and they're hugely talented and they're just right for the part. And, and you know that as soon as that film's done, chances are that kid's just getting put into cold storage. We will never see them again. <laughs> And this is an interesting one here because you're thinking, well, I wonder which one of these kids will go on to other things. Because they're all very good. And the and actually the bullies are good as well. So there's Nicholas Hamilton is Henry Bowers. And that's and again, it's these things. Where I just haven't thought about these names. Yeah, like Bill Desborough. So he's um, Denver. Sorry. He's the he's the main kid. And he's played by Jane. Uh, Jane Lieberherr. Jane Lieberherr. Lieberherr. Who's uh, previously best known for Book of Henry earlier this year. Uh, which is also which, about abuse, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, and is also very mawkish and really not very good. Right, okay, so... Oh, it's also the Midnight Special. He's the kid from Midnight Special. Oh, he is. My God. That's the thing, is that these kids are changing so much right now because they're at that period where they'll grow like a foot in a year or something that uh, I did not recognise him from Midnight Special. Um, and Jeremy Ray Taylor, who plays Ben, who's an overweight lad, um, and gets picked on because of that. He was very good. I thought, actually, he was one of the main players. He's in Geostorm, the upcoming Geostorm. That, you know, the documentary. <laughs> we saw a trailer for Geostorm before it. The new Gerard Butler film. And, yes, a f- an action film that's all based on... Natural destruction. And natural disasters and, yeah, climate change and things like that doesn't seem to be the best thing to release right now anyway. But, uh, but yes, the, the and Henry Bowers, is, who's like yeah, the main baddie, or the he's the main bully in this film, played by Nicholas Hamilton. I just hadn't heard of that name in so long, and it's like, oh, I remember you, you're a scary character. And I thought in the film they got him quite well done in terms of... He's a, so he was in The Dark Tower too, if I remember correctly. He plays, uh, the, the kid in that, he plays his mate... I think Lucas Hansen. I think it's his mate. I vaguely remembered him being in it. Then again, I don't remember that much about the film The Dark Tower anyway. It was a bit of a. <laughs> it's like it if you were in it. So, yeah, so these kids are really good, uh, and which is good because the film is just largely carried by the kids. There aren't actually that, that many adults in it. There's a few. Because you don't see Bill's parents other than... I mean, his mum you glimpse once at yeah. the very beginning of the film. His dad has a bit of a go at him. I mean, his mum seems to have sort of checked out even before Georgie... That's uh, right, yeah. Before Georgie gets murdered. And uh, and then... And his dad is just utterly distant with him. But you get the impression that based just on the family photos, that wasn't always the case. No, that's right. There's a. It seems to be the death of the son has really yeah, destroyed the family unit. Um, and Sophia Lillis as Bev... Hmm. Who's the who's the one girl in the film? Um, sorry, and in, she carries a large gang. portion of the film, doesn't she? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like Elle Fanning in Super Eight was just great, and all the kids were great in that. But she was one of those where it's like you are the best actor here um, amongst the kids cast, and it was kind of the same here. There just seemed to be something, yeah, the old cliche about like you know, girls mature quicker, and they just seem to have like a sense of the world ahead of boys, and that's it comes across in this film as true she's very good and in the film she it's like if they don't cast Amy Adams if they can't get Amy Adams for the second film that's a shame because she looks so much like Amy Adams and you presume was cast because she looks a lot like Amy Adams as well as being a great actor herself I would say yeah (laughs) and yeah and she's got a real I can kind of get I guess the word charisma again and a presence and a sort of an assuredness that also really, really works with the character 
who you know secretly is experienced some horrible stuff and is you know and has that vulnerability. Mm. And uh, yeah, we haven't we haven't even talked about Pennywise yet, have we? We haven't even talked. No, about... we're saving that for a bit. I wanted to work the kids first because I thought the kids were very good and they're you know, largely unknowns. I mean, yeah, you've got a kid from Midnight Special, you've got a kid from Stranger Things, but yeah, well, those kids were definite unknowns before those things. And um, so it's it's really good that they've gone with an unknown cast of kids that were just kind of the right faces and. It's set in the eighties. They've just got the right glasses and the right airwolf t-shirts and the right kind of haircuts to completely convince that they are in the eighties. And it's also one of the things that Stand by Me did very well. It seemed to set the template for how you do a period kids film where you want it to have a certain amount of grit and realism to it. So they all say fucking shit and you know that kind of stuff. And they're not constantly dropping like they're not constantly going. Hey, you want to go see that new very period specific film? That's right. It just seems they G Willikers, you know. That's right. Yeah, they act very naturalistic for being in this world. There's one reference to someone just spending their, you know, their summer honing their street fighter skills, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you're not talking about actual street fighting. You're talking about the arcade game Street Fighter, aren't you? It's uh, and that was a nice yeah, little throwaway. It's actually one of those films where it doesn't really go out of its way to do lots of pop culture. You don't see much on telly. I won't spoil what's on the telly. Well, I mean, I don't know. Would it be no, spoiling? No, no, I, I don't think. We, I don't think we need to say. That's the thing because they are mostly out and about. You mm. know, playing in the creek and sort of wandering. And all, and, going to the library. Yeah, and, and, and there is a lot, and there, there, all this, all this stuff is there, sort of, you know, as background detail if you keep an eye out for it. But yeah, it, it's basically just these kids who are going through something, basically alone, basically or by themselves. Yeah, the adults are either getting in the way or they're absent. And there's that really creepy scene that I thought was so well done in The Chemist. And Bev is having to distract the guy who works in The Chemist behind the counter. And the way that she does it and the way that he responds to it is just so creepy. And and it's also that I think the first proper time that you get a sense actually something is definitely wrong with this town. You're right, it is really creepy. Yeah, and just and cringy. There's, there's a line that... There's kind of a cool... Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> That it's just, it's not overtly, it's essentially one of those things that you just pick up and go, Ugh. Yeah, well, so, uh, we exchanged a look, didn't yeah. we? It's one of those where it's kind of like, that was horrible, but well handled, I thought. Now, because I often go to Fright Fest, I'm afraid, sorry, I often get a chance to interview lots of the filmmakers there. There was a period of a couple of years when I was interviewing actors, particularly British actors, and saying, so what was a formative scare for you when you were a kid? And so many of them said It, the miniseries It, because Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown just seemed to be something that if you were under 10 years old, or if you were around 10 years old and you were watching It, that just seemed to be the most terrifying thing in the world. And it was a real, it's like, this is just a trend. Because I saw it when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's 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 good enough, but it's the book is better. Everything you he secret- is good in it, though. It's everything you secretly suspected about clowns, because he's yeah. doing it as somebody who is a clown. That's right. I think that the character of Pennywise himself was based on John Wayne Gacy, who was a serial killer in the 80s, who made his living as a clown at children's parties. He was known as the clown killer, because clowns themselves are just really fucking scary. And... Um, I did mean to look up... What's the name of a phobia of clowns? Chorophobia. Chorophobia. C-O-U-L-rophobia. Chorophobia, yeah. yeah. 
which is like aphidiophobia. So aphidiophobia is an irrational fear of snakes. But there's no such thing as an irrational fear of snakes because snakes are evil and terrifying. <laughs> so therefore, you should be afraid of them. You shouldn't. You shouldn't want to be near a snake. And chorophobia is like, well, that's not really phobic either. It's like, yeah, I understand an irrational fear of buttons being a phobia because buttons are not threatening. But clowns are inherently evil like snakes. <laughs> yeah, it's... The Clowns I- might disagree with that, but anyway. Well, it's, it's the idea of somebody putting on this very br- garish, jovial persona that is just... Like what? Like what do you want from me? That's right. It is. A, it is. It's one of those where it's like, <laughs> and it's. I think it's also because the head is very big and the hands are very big and everything's disproportionate. It's, it's like they, they kind of like big babies. And an adult pretending to be a baby is always scary. There was a film of Fright Fest called Attack of the, the Adult Babies. Adult Babies, which apparently was very, very disturbing. Um, it's a black comedy, but apparently it's very, very disturbing. So clowns themselves, in just in terms of the jollity, but it's jollity with like kind of lots of a painted face in which everything is exaggerated. So they're just immediately unnerving. It's, it's right, yeah, in kind of enforced jollity, and that comes from Bill Sarsgaard's performance. Um, so he was he hasn't really done that much that would suggest that he was the right actor for Pennywise. I didn't think. It's interesting. I mean, he's doing Castle Rock next. Yes. Which is the Stephen King series. That's right. Uh, and he, he'd done Hemlock Grove. He, he's in... Atomic Blonde. Of course he played her, her her German contact in Atomic Blonde. He did. But it's one of those things where it's like, this, I think, was just one of those things when they said, okay, let's try and get a big name actor. And ultimately said, let's just, in, let's just audition people. Um, and Bill Skarsgård gave the best audition I'd imagine because he is great in it I was worried that he would be too young because I think in the book I always imagined him to be like a middle aged man Tim Curry is a middle aged man when he played when he played it and it it was one of those things where that miniseries would have been pretty poor if not for him he was amazing in that but no I thought that Bill Skarsgård was was great kind of got this sort of giggling vaudevillian that's right he's incredibly physical I mean there's yeah, some CG augmentation of his movement, but he does seem to be someone who is incredibly physical and can move his limbs in that slightly loose-limbed way that the merry melodies of the so the Disney cartoons of the 30s, where they where where the animation style wasn't quite realistic, so it was uncanny valley of just really loose-limbed yeah. arms, and it was like, oh my god, it's terrifying, <laughs> and he seemed to come from that era. Which was good. And apparently he can move his eyes independently of each other so that... And he can look outwards because there's a certain thing where his eyes... You realise that his eyes are kind of like a pointing... He's kind of controlling them all, like almost like remote... It's that point you realise that it's an act and that all these components is just... This is something he's assembled. It's like, he's kind of it's operating it all. Wearing. That's yeah. right. It's a costume he's wearing to look like something that children will respond to. And it's a really nice thing in terms of he is funny and ingratiating and can keep the threat level to just below a... Just below, yeah, just below freak-out point. Yeah, just below the freak-out point where kids would just run off so kids' yeah, curiosity will literally get the better of them. Well, that's the thing, like, he feels... When you initially meet him, he's got a slightly um, 
sort of simple-minded quality, simple like simple-minded quality. Sort of, sorry, that, I don't know. If, I don't know whether that's a term you like to use anymore. But sort of quality film where you're like, if this were a, f- a, ma- a magical fantasy film, you can believe that this kid thinks that he's going to go down to the sewer and have an adventure with this clown. That's right. And that they're going to be best friends because it's kind of like, eh? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's me and you, Georgie, and we're just friends forever. Um, and we all float. And the thing, his voice is high, but it does have like this high. Well, it, it has does like have this raspy, gravelly, raspy yeah. undertone to it, which again comes, I think, from the um, from the fact that you're thinking clown performers traditionally were like <laughs> men who would be smoking a pack a day and then going, "Oh, hey, kids!" It's Krusty the Clown. It's Krusty the Clown. Yes, or Shakes the Clown, the um, Bobcat Goldthwait <laughs> film, which is fucking amazing. Uh, the only time that Shakes the Clown. Or the clowns haven't been scary. Is with Shakes the Clown or Krusty the Clown, <laughs> the only non-scary clowns. I have read that clowns themselves have come out against the film. Why? Because they say it misrepresents clowns as being things that are evil and scary. But we had that thing not that long ago with the creepy clown people just in clowns kind of like, just, appearing. just appearing in places. But the clown community came out again and said, can you stop doing this please because you are misrepresenting clowns. Clowns are things that bring joy and and laughter to millions of children. And that's the thing Do they that, know? Well, I think they do. I think clowns do tend to do that. It's just that I think it's one of those things that adults might be more scared of clowns than kids because I suppose if you're a kid, it's an it's a grown up and he's being really silly and he's doing all these things and he keeps falling over and you know and now he's got lots of water on him and blah, blah, blah. as an adult it's like it's like a big baby is coming to the room and at any point could just become malevolent. I am terrified, and of course Poltergeist has a clown in it as well, doesn't it? Like yeah, both toy, versions yes. of them, yeah. And Bar Simpson's bed that Homer makes has a clown, doesn't it? Can't sleep, clown will eat me. Can't sleep, clown will eat me. If you die before you wake. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so, clowns themselves, I think, are um, inherently scary and evil. The clowning community would beg to differ. Um, and But Bill Skarsgård gives a really good performance as Pennywise, kind of like the way that... Heath Ledger followed Jack Nicholson, which is all from the same period. It's like, well, can you do the Joker again? It's like, well, Heath Ledger shows that you can. There's a, there's a point in this where he's get, kind of mocking this kid and getting right up in his face, which is slightly reminiscent of Heath Ledger's Joker. I think there's a little bit of the Joker DNA throughout the whole thing in this, I yeah. think. I think it's... Um, yeah. so it's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, indeed, you're right. Yeah, because of course he is a clown as well. It's um, You're right, and he does get up in their faces. And there's a really good scene in which they all have to fight him together where... They're all clearly upset by what's happening because he's this horrible monster that they are trying that they're having to try and kill because he's trying to eat them. And um, it's funny because we were talking about this afterwards because in the book it's one of those things where he's more of a snake. He will sort of like kind of yeah, hypnotize you and and lure you well, in. There's a bit of that in this one. There when, is when, when at one point a bit of it. You see one of the monsters and the monster's saying something. And all of a sudden, Pennywise crop pops up yes. somewhere else, and you realise that he's the one. He's he's silently mouthing the things that the monster is saying. Yes, that's right. It's, uh, actually, I, yeah, to be honest, I didn't actually pick up on the fact that he was mouthing what the monster was saying. That's a good point. But when he's attacking, the manner in which he attacks, and they've chosen to show him attacking, yeah, yeah. I thought was I'm not going to spoil it here, but I thought it was done. Very, it was done very well to be a predator. This is all. This is a film about 
abuse and about having to fight back against against bullies. It's a film of like the victims and predators and he is the apex predator here. And the way that he attacks is like an apex predator and I was like, yeah, that's that's really scary. Well done. That's really, really quite scary. Um It reminded me a, a very little bit of uh, it follows in terms of his you know in a form that's very personal to you. Mm. And the um the rules of Pennywise, I think, and this usually annoys me, but I think it works in the context. The rules that govern Pennywise are unclear. In a, it's like, under what circumstances is he quote unquote allowed to get you? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I'm. There are times when you think, why is he not killing these kids now? And there are sometimes you think, okay, so something has changed here, and some light's been let in the room, and that's enough to. Kind of dispelled to shine a light on him because he is, you know, he's a kiddie killer. So therefore, he will just you know, lurk in the shadows because he is just the worst, of the worst. But you're right. I thought there were some points where I was like, "What are the rules here that are governing him in terms of when he can be lethal and when he can be stopped?" And I'm not entirely sure the film didn't play entirely straight by that. What would you think? I don't think if the, if the, if the book does necessarily too. Yeah, that was the book. In terms of, like, he is basically, he's this trickster demon who eats kids. (laughs) And you kind of go along with it and going, okay, he's playing with his food. He's uh, he's enjoying this. He's getting, like, you know, some sadistic Mm. delight out of it. Jesus. I think that was UNICEF again trying to get in touch with me. (laughs) It's like, I can't give you any more money. And that's actually, yes, that was UNICEF. And that's ironic because we're talking about saving children. (laughs) But UNICEF, I... I give enough to you every month. I can't give more, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So anyway, so back to... Uh, <laughs> what was I saying? We were talking uh, about uh, his playing with his food. Yeah, kind of playing with his food, getting this sort of solistic delight out of... But at what point do you just eat them? Yeah, I was thinking that, because there are some points where it's like... Like, I'm, convi- wasn't, I'm convinced he's got you now. It didn't quite make it clear until the very end at what point they could be stronger than him. So there were a couple of scenes where I thought... I don't think you would be this much of a threat to him as the film is suggesting. Yeah. But by the end, I kind of thought, actually, that was satisfying enough in terms of how you confronted him. Because I always remember the end of the book to be something that was good. And it'd be interesting to see how they do the adult stuff because it gets very, very metaphysical. Um, but I remember the end of the book being good, but not as good as what came before. So it'd be interesting to... Uh, actually, interesting to go back and read the well, book it's again. Pay, it's a payoff to a thousand... To a thousand. Page, page novel where eventually about the ultimate evil yeah they, they just they have to and they have to kill it yeah so it's uh and it's interesting the the town of Derry appears in the book of 112263 as well he uh, the main character has to go to Derry in the past for a while and it's 63 so it's about eight years after it and the town is still well actually I think a uh, at that point, the town is beginning to collapse a bit um, because of what's happened, and there's a there's a you know, clearly like a disease to this town, and it's interesting that you kind of think, well, because that was all about evil, and uh, you could argue that the um, that the assassination of JFK was one of the the great you know, moments of innocent loss for a country, and it's all about the loss of innocence. So it was interesting that he kind of intersected the two stories together. Talking about the wider Stephen King universe. Is uh, it would now be the point to talk about the Dark Tower? 
The Dark Tower, which is meant to be the next... Is there anything else to say about it? Uh, it's, it's there, it is, yeah, there's... It is the... Because it was... I think, ultimately, it was a film that I thought... A uh, film adaptation of it, okay, fair enough, this is going to be fine. It will be you know, one of those where it'll come, it'll go, and blah, blah, blah. It'll be interesting to see what it would have been like if it had been released in a world without Stranger Things. But overall, I think that it worked very well. It holds up very... Yeah, it's... it's um care about the characters it's scary it works as an adaptation of the book it works on its own terms yeah you don't need to read the book to understand what's going on at all and it is touching and it's and it's heartfelt which means that the horror works even more as well because crucially they just land the the kids all of the kids actually I'd say all of the characters really well and as crucially they land the character of Pennywise absolutely perfectly I think Um, when's the next one coming out do you know what? I don't. I think it's now been greenlit, but it's one of those where I think they were they were Holding hedging off. their bets a bit, yeah. which is mad. Really thinking that because the film itself does work well enough as a standalone story, but I think they were going to see how well it would do. But I think with the advance word on the reviews being so glowing, and that they said yes, we will just make another one. So I think that's actually. I'm not sure if it's in production now, but it's definitely in. What was pre-production? The, what was the budget? Do we, we've been a- yeah, what is the budget? Because it looks like it's it's going to take in the states a hundred and one million dollars this weekend, unless Hurricane Irma really really dents it. But the budget was thirty five million dollars. Wow! So that, you know, it's tripled its budget in a day in a weekend. Its production budget, yeah. It would be interesting to see how much they spent on advertising because the advertising has been good. I, uh, yeah, so Ben was telling us that in the states, a large part of the advertising has just it's viral. It's been. Yeah, and it's been tying red balloons because a red balloon is like the thing that is like a bit of a harbinger of Pennywise appearing, tying them to drain grills and things like that, to storm drains and stuff, so that you just have these red balloons there. And that's all that's actually quite quite effective marketing. There's that really good line. There's there's a house that is a very, very scary house in the film, and Pennywise appears in the garden and says to one of the kids, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. <laughs> And it's like, so come inside. And it's like, ooh, that's a really, that horrible logic. If you lived here, you'd be home by now. So, mm, terrifying. That is <laughs> undoubtedly true. Undoubtedly true. And also, I just. Can't argue with that logic. But I think I'd be in so much danger if I lived here because it's the scariest house in the world and you're a big, horrible, scary clown. So, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think some issues are being dealt with now. I'm purging myself. So, really good Stephen King adaptation, I would say, of a really, really difficult-to-crack book. To go to another really big, hefty chunk of Stephen King writing that's not as well done, do you want to talk about your experience watching The Dark Tower? Okay, I'm going to sort of premise this by talking about a little bit about what The Dark Tower is. The Dark Tower is a series of books written by Stephen King that essentially forms, like, the nexus point of his entire bibliography. As in, like, basically everything he's written exists in the same universe as the Dark Tower. The Dark Tower literally, as an object, uh, sorry, and you could say, uh, stands at the middle of everything. It is, like, the, it's the linchpin of reality. It's this tower that essentially holds the universe together. And there, and, and the, the book series and the film follows this character called Roland Deschain, who's the gunslinger, who is in pursuit of this essentially evil wizard, the man in black, who goes by various various names, who is looking to essentially claim the tower for himself as as an agent of a of a much bigger evil, 
and there are seven books, I think. Right. Uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have got that wrong. I think because they've done a couple of short stories and a couple of novellas, um, but all you know these, and they're all a couple of hundred pages, at least a couple of hundred, few hundred pages each. And essentially, this has been sitting in development hell for years because it is very weird. It is essentially, uh, I think King conceived of it as a, as a fusion of Lord of the Rings and um, spaghetti westerns, <laughs> and. It's, Which you can kind of see, though, because there is a certain like kind of quest element that is in the searches. It's also in Lord of the Rings and yeah, the American and, and, West. And the quest so element is so crucial because Roland, in going after Man in Black, passes through a lot of various different realities, including you know, the, the, including the post-apocalyptic like you know bro, bro, world of the Stand, and there are references to so many Stephen. You know, in in the books, he he encounters a creature that's not Pennywise, but is clearly of, of the same species that Pennywise is meant to be. Uh, that I believe also, yeah, and oh, wow, okay. and, it, it, and it really, you know, it, you know, to quote, you know, to quote the dude on the rug, it really ties the room together. <laughs> um, and it's been sitting in development hell for years. It was initially conceived of they were going to do a TV series, and it was going to be J.J. Abrams, and he dropped out because he's got he's got a real love of Stephen King's work, but he'd be doing it right off the back of Lost, right. and he didn't want to commit to such a. And okay, it's recently, after much much compromise, arrived on the screen, directed by a guy called Nicola Ar- Nicolaj Arcel, I think. Is his name, uh, who previously did uh, a royal engagement, who's you know very much oh, right, you know yeah. the best will the best will in the world, a gun for hire, yeah, and starring uh, Idris Elba as Roland, and controversially, controversially, yeah, for 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 you know for other for the same reason that his casting was controversial, just no, fuck in it. Thor, in Thor, so the gunslinger's white in the books, isn't he? Yeah, well, the gunslinger is basically. Um, uh, um, Clint Eastwood. He's basically yeah. no name, uh, and with Matthew McConaughey as um, as Walter Paddock or Walter Adim or you know lots of he's got the evil, the man in black, right? And essentially they've butchered it. Well, they've, they, they've sorry, they've made the most straightforward, generic three act version of what is in what is a very twisty, turny, complex, myth heavy sequence series of books. The conceived of this as part of an extended series, they've essentially boiled down all the books into this one film, film. that runs for hundred minutes. Is it something like 95? that? Ninety-five. Let's see. What have we got? Bad thing on IMDb. I can't even. They've see. yeah. They've add, they put uh, they put a uh, Dark Tower skin on IMDb, and you can't read any. And you can't read any of the any of the information on the film. Um, so that's really interesting. So yeah, it's but um, yeah, sent, uh, 95, 95 minutes. Ninety-five minutes. Yeah. 95 um, minutes. I mean, that's. So when I was a teen, I just read everything that Stephen King did. I couldn't get into the Dark Tower series, and I tried to it's, read it's the first one. It's a big commitment. It's. Uh, but I'm, the, I'm so old that when I I remember the first book coming out and buying it. So I actually had the first book when it was just that book. In the forward, he talked about this being a massive piece of writing, and this was going to be like a massive series, and they had huge ambitions for it. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do that because he wasn't sure if it was going to be successful. And I think it's one of those things where, even though he was the biggest writer in the world at that point, um, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, we will pay you to write horror novels, but if you want to write a fantasy novel, then you have to prove you, that you 
have an audience for that. You're going on a real journey with them throughout <clears> them, and it, and it does, and it's got weird stuff that's just weird in there. Stephen King appears as himself as, as a character. <laughs> There's a dement, an insane AI monorail train called Blame the Mono, and just just <laughs> it's, it's like it basically it feels like every idea he's ever had, he's just, put, he's just uh, but, but 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 you know couldn't really fit in the context of another, couldn't wouldn't justify a novel of itself, and couldn't fit in the context of another story. He's just put it in there, right. And this adaptation strips all of that away. You've got Roland going after the man in black. And, and, and having stripped all that away, the, the opening shot is the opening line of the book. It's, you know, the, uh, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. It's one of the most, it's probably the most famous opening line of Stephen King. It's certainly Stephen King ever, right? It's, it's, it's yeah, a great opening yeah. line. And it does crop up in, you know, in, in the course of the film. But it's just... The, the the film the, the first book very clearly follows Roland and it's his it's, it's his vengeance against this character as part of the broader longer you know story to reach the dark tower and instead the film focuses on the kid Jake who isn't int- even introduced in the first novel you know the the moppet who lives in New York and weird things are happening because the dark tower is under attack and essentially they've they've clearly it's clearly was at some point at least a two hour movie that they've edited down. Because well, I'd imagine at some point it was like at least a two and a half hour movie. You'd clearly read all these books because you said it. But when I watched the trailer for the Dark Tower, I was like, "Is this the story, the Dark Tower? That it's a kid who lives in New York and there's this alternate reality, and they need his help to defeat the ultimate evil." That seems a bit like the Neverending Story, which is ironic because this film's yeah quite swift. And also, is that story, the Dark Tower? I'm not sure if that just hasn't been you know, radically changed to try and make it something more audience palatable yeah, for people who don't want to think and I think this is clearly such a compromised version because you know there's so, ma- so many I mean it's a Sony film and Sony had sign off and there was a couple of other production companies involved and they had sign off and the King of State had sign off and essentially apparently every trailer the reason they've only released they only released like two trailers and the first one which gave absolutely nothing away and they kept on they aired it for months is because every because it had to go through so many levels of approval and this is clearly the version that everybody agreed upon which is just nothing. Yeah. The, the, I mean, and you know, talking about it having been edited clearly edited down, the final, like the third act, the payoff, payoff, the climax, is not only incredibly generic. It lasts about fifteen minutes. Or it's like, oh shit, we're now in the third, and now the third act's over. Wow. Okay. From what you said about it, and from what I've heard from other podcasts as well, it just sounds like the Fantastic Four. Or fan force. It's thing. not as bad as the Fantastic Four, but it's also not as memorable as the Fantastic Four. Because oh, anything that could be said about Fantastic Four is that I can't believe that you released this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I, I can believe they released this, but I wish they had it. Well, looking at, at the writers, one of them is Akiva Goldsman, the direct, uh, the writer. None of more hacky. Akiva none Goldsman. more hacky, or yeah, none more. The, um, okay, you wanna hit 20 million opening nights and you want to sell this much popcorn okay I'll just bash out something utterly inoffensive and utterly bland and forgettable and he direct he wrote sorry um, Batman and Robin he also wrote the script of I Am Legend the Will Smith one which actually completely missed the point well missed the point or betrayed the point I mean and the point is being one of the great twists of horror fiction you fuck that um, and Whenever I see Akiva Gosman, I just think, oh, we are going to get and something And he directed, here. wrote and directed A New York Winter's Tale. Yes, indeed. It's like, I just think, what, what we're going to get here is something incredibly mediocre. He is... I mean, he won, he's, he's got an Oscar. He won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind, a film 
about a genius that is so terrified of being clever that it won't actually even really tell you why this guy is so clever and also utterly misrepresents him as being um, a cuddly, troubled, kind of Robin Williams type when in real life he was a lot darker, a lot more spiky, absolutely cynical and paranoid about other people. Much more interesting, to be honest. I mean, it's like, make that film. It won't make lots of cosy millions, but it will be a much more interesting film that might still... Yeah, surprise you again. Quite audience. put together that he direct, he wrote the Da Vinci Code because obviously the Da Vinci That's Code yeah. steals from a beautiful mind in terms of how it shows um, Robert Langdon working stuff out because it all appears in the air in front of him and he That's does that. Right, whole... yes. So I hadn't realised that Akiva Goldsman essentially ripped himself off. To... Oh dear, actually he wrote loads of them. Did he write? No, he wrote Angels and Demons. He didn't do Inferno by the looks of it. He wrote Rings, which everyone said was shit. Transformers The Last Night, he did the story, story for that. Um, Nobody did the story for that. No. It's, uh, um, Michael Bay had a dream. <laughs> well, actually, for The Last Night, Transformers The Last Night, the way that was written was that they got about 20 writers in a room, some of whom knew nothing about the franchise, knew nothing about the toys. Others were absolutely experts filled the room with hamburgers and yeah, vending machines and lots of lots of coke the drink and that kind of stuff and just and he just said just spitball ideas just spitball ideas have the time of your lives eat as much sugar as you want just do all this stuff just get it all up on on whiteboards get it all like you know recorded and we'll just see what comes out of this and yeah so that film was actually the story for that film was 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 by about 20 people and it's you can tell and you can tell because it's indigestible mess it's uh, it's so weird it's like yeah this committee filmmaking doesn't really work but yeah so The Dark Tower and you just think why why did you I mean, not make this into a series I mean Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey are both good in it I mean Elba's got like sort of graph he's you know he can he, he can do it in his sleep but you know the issue being that he's not he gets a couple of like nice little deadpan fish out of what water sort of one liners when he's in New York and in our time He's not so much the man with no name as the man with no personality. Yes, the man with no purpose. And, um, and Matthew McConaughey, you know, gets to sort of bring this kind of insidious, you know, southern genteel, you know, very, sort of very bored, languid evil. Mm. Again, they're like both actors are just like, yeah, they're, they're cashing it. If at any point they were passionate about this project, then I don't. Then what they were hoping for clearly didn't end up on the screen. Because it you know, it takes things that you know fans that fans of the novel like big iconic events, and just reduces them to nothing. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just it's it, it is soup. It is they've taken this big meaty narrative and thrown it in the pot and just boiled it and cooked it and cooked it and cooked it and cooked it and now they've just gone. And, and in a small portion, yeah. <laughs> yes. you know, as 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 Woody as Woody Allen, you know, as the Woody Allen joke goes, the food here is terrible and the portions are so small. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to wrap up the Dark Tower. Jesus, I will watch it. I will. Do you know what? I don't know because I want to read the book, so I might hold off. Hold off. I'll hold off watching it until I've read a few of the books. Um, well, the other Stephen King related thing. This is a big King podcast is that Stephen King on the 21st of September is going to be 70 years old. Wow. Yeah, heroes do get old. Uh, the BFI, so the British Film Institute, are doing a really good King on-screen season that's, that started last week um, and runs until the 3rd of October. And it feels, by you know, what I've seen, that really 
pretty comprehensive. Pretty comprehensive. There are there are a few things that aren't in there. They've because um, you'll always have some guilty pleasures from Stephen King's filmography. One of my guilty pleasures is Silver Bullet. <laughs> so yes, that's one of the, and that's not on, and it's actually shot well in scope as well. It's like a full. 2.39 film and I would have gone to see it at the cinema in scope you're right other than Silver Bullets the masterpiece that is that this is a pretty comprehensive season in terms of what you'd want to see so uh, a friend and I saw Christine the other night and that was really great to see that on an FT1's screen introduced by a guy called Simon Brown who's associate professor of film at Kingston University and he gave a really good quite affectionate intro to Christine that was really informative. Apparently Christine was published in 83, April of 83. The film came out in December of 83. I mean, this just showed that there was a real appetite for Stephen King and just in any form in the early 80s after he'd hit big with his books. And yes, it was it was great to see Christine on a big screen with a flawless print. It would be interesting where they got it from. And we're going to go and see Carrie at the IMAX on Monday. And I'm seeing The Shining. And you'll see The Shining directly afterwards at the IMAX. It will be interesting to see how big they can get the image for Carrie and The Shining. Uh, I've seen other films, like your know, regular films, projected onto the IMAX screen. And it is, it is bigger than normal. But Carrie is one of those that... I love Carrie. I just think Carrie's a perfectly directed film with a perfect central performance by Sissy Spacek one of those where you can see that like Brian De Palma said right I'm going to do all of this with these amazing visuals I'm going to have so much fun with the camera so much fun with my shot composition and generating suspense and just providing the most thrilling visual experience because I know over here we've got Amy Irving and um, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie John Travolta John Travolta and William Catt and all these really really good character actors who I just know are going to you know, really carry the emotion of the film and it's interesting with Carrie, in this era of everyone complaining about spoilers in trailers, the original trailer for Carrie is just the entire film. It's so weird. It's like you watch it going, like, there was no point in seeing that film because you've just shown us everything that happens. Is this because this would never... It, because people wouldn't see this uh, that often, therefore you had to make a real impact with it? Because you have given away the entire film. Uh, so if you haven't seen Carrie, I wouldn't recommend watching the original trailer on YouTube, but I would recommend going to see it at the King on Screen season because I think that Carrie might be one of my favourite films of all time. Anyway. It's interesting. My, as a, as a sort of teen, my first experience, experience with Stephen King, especially um, on, on film, you know, on, on screen, apart from sort of, you know, sort of watch, having watched The Shining, were the miniseries, were largely his miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the generally going back to um, The Shining being, uh, Stephen, being Stephen King's preferred, you know, the miniseries being his preferred version. Um, yeah, and just sort of watching one of those of an evening, like, you know, uh, The Langoliers or... The Tommyknockers. Uh, oh, the or... Tommyknockers. Or, um, or Rose Red. I love, I've, I've gotten a real affection for Rose Red because it is like, it's like the, um, it's like the house on Haunted Hill. This way, <laughs> um, or the, you know, sort of the haunting in them, but done incredibly literally with none of the subtext. So it's like, we've stripped all that away. Instead, every, you know, we're going to talk about the house's history and it's a bit like the Winchester mansion and they've just kept, they, and this mad woman just kept building it and kept building it and kept building it. And then she disappeared and all these other people disappeared and you know that at some point they're all going to appear as ghosts. <laughs> it's interesting. It seems to be a thing that happens that um, you are really into something as like a teenager and then you just have your fill of it and other things come along and it's just one of those things then you go back to it and Stephen King was that for me that it was um, 
so I just ate up everything that he wrote apart from the Dark Tower. Um, but by the early 90s, I'd say that, what was the last book? I think that Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which, which was a collection of short stories, I think that was the last book or, uh, yeah, that I read of his before then just not reading anything. Apart from The Green Mile when that came out, I read that for about 20 years. It was, uh, I just thought, no, I've, I've had my fill of Stephen King. And but, so now I'm going back and reading things. And there's actually Doctor Sleep, which was the sequel to The Shining, that I thought, actually, yeah, I, I should read the sequel to The Shining. I, uh, I love the book of the Green Mile. The, um, mm, there's, there's a scene involving a bus crash that has just stuck in my memory incredibly vividly. Yes, uh, is, yeah, I just think, and, and people people criticise King uh, as a, as as uh, King, King's pose, prose style and a lot. His his ability to create, I mean, that's one of the reason he adapts so well to screen is that visually he does. He's, he's yeah, he's incredibly evocative, and he's a he, he's a wordsmith, you know. Oh, he is. And, and I think maybe people King's been in the last couple of maybe the last decade has undergone a bit of a reevaluation because I remember when I was when I was in my teens and as a kid, people were being very snooty about him. And they now seem to have slightly moved. We seem to have slightly moved past that at a point where it's okay to go. Do you know what Stephen King writes well? Good. And it's funny that you said that the people were being snooty about him when you were a kid, which would have been the early nineties, because that was the point when I'd actually stopped reading Stephen King, and I spent you know, the eighties reading it. Yeah, you know, the literati kind of saying it was a New York Times. I think it was quite. I'm sure it was a New York Times anyway. But it was a a writer of note, of such note that I can't remember his name, who said. I read Salem's a lot last night. I thought, well, I'm, if you read it all in one night, mate, then they didn't read it properly because I don't care how clever you are, you're not going to read that book in one night. And he said, and I decided that reading Stephen King is much like squirting lots of whipped cream into your mouth. It's really good fun while it's happening, and then afterwards you just feel really ashamed. And I thought, oh, fuck off. <laughs> it's like, one, you that is so insulting to anyone that thinks that this is good writing, which I do. Um, and two, there is you know, a lot of passion in his writing. He can create incredibly dark imagery. He he deals with incredibly dark themes. And I think it's a class thing as well, because he was dirt poor when he was a kid. And there's a real you know, preoccupation in his book with working class and with people struggling. And then this other agent of annoyance and obstacle comes into their lives that is basically life-threatening. And it's like, well, that's... I think there's 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 just a class element to this as well. And that's the thing, like Stephen King can write. Like you know, you can you can tell. Is a, a way of telling good writing is obviously to hold it up against bad writing. Hold up anything, basically anything that Stephen King's ever written against something that's you know equally considered popular. It's like a Dan Brown book. Oh God, yeah. And yeah. then and you'll immediately go, oh shit, Stephen King can write. So I think that the um, so just quickly running through some of the films that are playing in the Stephen King season. So the Dead Zones on tomorrow. Um, Sunday the 10th, and so by the time this goes out, it'll be the day of, I think. And they're only showing that once. That's a bit of a shame, because I really, really like The Dead Zone, and I'd like to see that projected. That's a film, actually, that I think is better than the book, I think. And even Stephen King said to Jeffrey Bohm, who wrote the screenplay, he would later go on and kind of be a mentor to the, to, to the young writers who did The Lost Boys. That's why he's credited on The Lost Boys as well. He did some stuff that uh, the Stephen King said actually they were better choices in the film than I did in the book. The bit with the ice breaking in the film on the kid's birthday when they all go skating is in the book. I think they're in a club and it burns down or something like that. There's a there's a thing early in the film where some where this guy because it's all about a guy who, who goes into a coma and comes out with a, the ability to, to um, see the future. And there's a bit when he can see the 
that someone's kid is in mortal peril, but in the book it's this woman's cats, and it's like, well, that just immediately is Makes not as engaging or as like, yeah, because there's there's almost no danger there, and the and it also has an amazing performance by Martin Sheen as uh, as presidential candidate Greg Stilson. AKA Donald fucking Trump. Just a political documentary, The Dead Zone. It is, it really is. Then we've got The Shining, um, and I think that they're showing that a few times. Um, and Carrie, no, sorry, I think. Stand by Me, of course. Stand by Me. And they've got right, some lectures. Pretty, pretty yeah, full on. They're also showing Dolores Claiborne, and I'm really happy about that. I think I'm actually in Berlin get me the day that's on it's on Sunday the 24th um, and that's a real shame because I really, really like Dolores Claiborne and I'd like to see that film again so, yeah, we, uh, we should, oh, there's, there's, they're also doing a quiz that we should try and get along to when is that quiz? I'm not sure we should, we should, uh, we should, we should look it up so I think they've got them all here because I think it could be that weekend that I'm away um, well you made your choice I know yes because the weekend that I'm away in Berlin they've got a Stephen King summit that goes on for a day and that's a shame because uh, yes it, it would have been good to see that but but they're showing stuff like Creepshow which was the one that he wrote the screenplay he's in one of the stories it's like a George A. Romero anthology horror film and it's all EC comic style stories Creepshow's great it's one of those that I think was utterly overlooked when it came out and has sort of quite a bit of a cult following yeah and but actually is a genuinely good film Stand By Me is playing and that's a really good film they're actually showing the black and white version of The Mist which is the Frank Darabont preferred version that's on Thursday the 21st of September there's a lot of really good stuff here and, and they're showing Misery Pet Cemetery. they're putting that on which I think is quite quite nice of them because that film is it's just insane and not great um, they're doing Maximum Overdrive as well so. they are and I suppose if he's directed one film you've got to put that in there and I think they're just showing, is that just once that's on? And it's an NFT3, which is their smallest screen. I actually quite like NFT3. It's a nice a nice one to watch a film in. They show The Shawshank Redemption, of course, which is the... Uh, Greatest film of all time, apparently, according to IMDb. Yeah, and also according to lots and lots of people at work, so we work at Sky, and lots of people say that The Shawshank Redemption is their favourite film. It's just something about that film that just really captured people's imaginations. Um, Firestarter, which I used to love as a kid... Uh, so that's on Friday the 15th. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's actually pretty comprehensive in terms of what you'd want to see there. The only one that springs to mind that isn't there is Silver Bullet. <laughs> so, and I think lots of people would say that's no weight loss. Um, and Salem's Lot, which is on Sunday the 10th, so that's on tomorrow. They're showing the full three-hour version of that because it was a, it was a mini-series in that was in two parts but then was edited down to two hours for a European cinema release and I remember that just being great when I watched that as a kid it would be interesting to see how that holds up and The Dark Half with an intro by Michael Blythe who's the curator of this series it would be interesting to see what he has to say about it because it could be one of those where your appreciation of the film improves with an intro um, and Gerald's Game which is and a Q&A with the director Mike Flanagan and the producer mm-hmm. Trevor Mary, and that's been made for Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean he's got a lot, quite, quite a lot. Well, if, if you count it and, of course, the Dark Tower and the fact that Amazon is now doing Mr. Mercedes, and you've got the Mist playing on Netflix as as a series, but yeah. by all accounts isn't isn't very good. A missed opportunity. <laughs> a missed opportunity, very good. And you've got Gerald's Game. Then yeah, there, there is a lot of Stephen King stuff happening right now. So, yeah, I'd say get the to the BFI. To the BFI for 
the Stephen King season, or Stephen King on screen as it's called. If all details can be found on their website, um, whatson.bfi.org.uk. So go there. Just, yeah. Go, yeah, Google BFI and, and, it, yes. and, it, and you'll find your way. Yeah, BFI Stephen King, there you go. If you manage to download this podcast, we trust you. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But uh, yes, so it's a really good season and you should get along to it. So, I'll quickly talk about Mother. Okay. So, Mother is the new film from Darren Aronofsky, director of Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan and Pi. And his last film was Noah, which was good, kind of mad as arsehole. That, I think that would have been a mad as arsehole film that year. And Mother's quite a hard one to talk about because it's one of those things where the trailer appears to give away everything. The trailer actually gives away very little. It also sells it as a horror film when it's. And it is, it is a horror film, but it's a very unusual horror film. So Jennifer Lawrence is the woman, she doesn't actually have a name, and Javier Bardem is her husband, and do you know what, does he have a name? I don't think he does, I think it's even something like him or her, or her and, and the It man. is one of those, yeah, it's, um, yeah, so it's mother, it's Jennifer Lawrence, and it's him for Javier Bardem, and man for Ed Harris and woman for Michelle Pfeiffer. So it's one of those things where it's um, it's very stagey in many ways, um, or it feels like a play in many ways. The direction and the way that he chooses to shoot the film means that it could only ever be a film. But um, but yes, he doesn't really go into character names. But Jennifer Lawrence is this woman who is building the house or rebuilding the house after there's been a catastrophic fire, and it seems to be the childhood home of Javier Bardem. He is a poet who had really, really big success with the book and has just been unable to follow it up. So he's you know, feeling kind of impotent and just isn't really able to get his mojo back. Ed Harris turns up on his door one day and Ed Harris is a doctor and he's come and he has heard that the house is a bed and breakfast so he thinks he can stay there. It's not a bed and breakfast, it's their private house. But Harvey Bardem says, yeah, that's fine, come on, you can stay in and stay the night. And Jennifer Lawrence going, oh, okay, it's a bit weird, isn't it? You've just invited in this stranger. And then Michelle Pfeiffer turns up, and she's Ed Harris's wife. And he said, yeah, that's fine, you can say with as well. It's like, what's going on? Why, why are these people here? Why are these people here? And from that, it gets bigger and more insane. And that's the word, insane. Things happen. This is a perfect film for anyone who's just hated having to entertain a lot of family members at Christmas or anyone who's sort of like had to throw a big dinner party and lots of people have come in and it's like, oh, could you not put that there? And he could not put that there, please. And could anyone just kind of like, in the best possible way, just fuck off? <laughs> it's a social anxiety Everyone sit film. down and don't move. Everyone sit down and just don't make a mess. It's a social anxiety film about many different things, but kind of interacting with people and the way that it's very easy to feel um, yeah, swamped by responsibility and even in your own home it's like yeah this could be something that isn't um, yeah that you just can't control your surroundings and you think well Black Swan was like a social anxiety film as well in many ways and this is and it's a film in which there are I think he's a director that works quite well in that I think that The Wrestler is is about someone who at one point had love and has lost that and is yeah, trying to get it back but has no idea how to get it back because he's not the person that he was back then and it's all about him trying to make sense of his new surroundings. There are certain elements in, in the Harvey Bardem character and I think he does male ego very well as well and about how yeah, male ego can kind of yeah, feed off, um, off a female nurturing spirit and kind of abuse that. 
it and it gets very manic and it's one of those things that I would say some parts of it are like Synecdoche New York the Charlie Kaufman film and it has that real sense of if you look over here reality has gone a bit weird and it's like yeah the Charlie Kaufman does really well like in being John Malkovich or something like that where it's like if you go into that room things are just not the same there there's that sort of feel to it there's also a bit that's a bit like Children of Men to be honest it's sort of like things get very very big and very very insane and it's like oh why is he doing this now and it got booed but I like that I I say I really I, I admire a film that can get that can make you go oh you're doing this now and still continue to work and that's the thing is that it does work but there was a point where I thought does this have a point <laughs> is there anything here other than a bit of a you know that you want to talk about celebrity and you want to talk about social anxiety and you want to talk about male pride and this kind of stuff and it's like is there a point but you get to the end and it's like actually there was a point that was really well done but it's one of those things that there are surprises along the way that you, that you don't want to spoil but rest assured that you are in the hands of a director who can bring it all together in a way that I don't think he did with Noah but he does here it's kind of um, and he didn't do it with the fountain either remember the fountain did you see that one I did see the fountain god how rubbish that was um, this is much more like uh, Black Swan or Requiem for a Dream than it is the fountain or Noah and it's I just thought it was really really good so yes that would be Mother I think that's about it I think that's about it yeah so on that note I'd say yeah go and see it I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at just just how solid it is. Don't go and see The Dark Tower. Don't go and see Dark Tower, that's right. Attend the Stephen King on-screen season, the BFI, if you're able to, and by all accounts, go and see Mother. Yes, that's right. So, next time, we will be doing the Reservoir Dogs 25th Anniversary podcast. Yes, which is, uh, we will be recording next weekend. That's right. That's with our friend Ian, who was on the JFK one. So, uh, yeah, I'm quite looking forward to that one as well. I think that should be a, a good blather. <laughs> So thank you very much as always. And thank you very much as always. And as always, thank you for listening. And float well. Because we all float down here. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and introducing John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror... You have a date with Carrie.